You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vieta. And my name is Alice Koenig. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Biggs, lecturer in Latin at the School of Classics at St. Andrews. Tom has only just recently joined the department and we are very excited to talk to him today on the show. Tom's interests range widely over Latin literature from its beginnings in the third century BCE to the imperial period, the first century CE. What caught our eye is Tom's monograph published with the University of Michigan Press and Arbor in 2020 fresh out of the oven, as it were, which is entitled Poetics of the First Punic War. In it, Tom examines the different ways in which Romans in literature and other media have engaged with the first large-scale overseas war of the Romans across genres and centuries. So there are lots of topics and ideas here that really resonate with the Visualizing War Project and that we are looking forward to talking about with Tom today. So Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So, Tom, just to uh, start us off, could you tell us and our listeners a bit more about your book? Maybe we can just start with the title, Poetics of the First Punic War. What exactly do you mean by that? The key words in the title are war and poetics, I think. The book is really about what happens when a specific culture uses poetry to process war in a fundamental and influential fashion. The specific war the book is about, as you alluded to in the introduction, um, you know, occurred in the third century BCE during the years 264 to 241. And it's a conflict that brought together two major powers in the Western Mediterranean, uh, the Roman Republic and Carthage. Carthage was a Phoenician colonial city and a diasporic empire centered in modern Tunisia. And as the Republic grew in power and expanded its territories, uh, it was perhaps bound to come into conflict with this longtime neighbor. And much of the war the book's concerned with occurred in Sicily, uh, a wee bit in North Africa, but it was especially contested out on the waves, on the waters off of their coasts. And so it was Rome's first overseas war, as you mentioned. It, it brought in Hellenistic kings that forced Rome to become a naval superpower and to transform in many other ways. And it's this transformative moment that also sees the beginnings of what we could call literature in the language of the Romans, Latin. And among the first works is an epic style poem on this first war by a combat veteran named Gnaeus Naevius. And that's in many ways the subject of my book. It's an exploration of what this almost entirely lost poem can tell us about Rome's first clash with Carthage and how that informed a long legacy of literary composition and modes of engaging with conflict at Rome, and how the transformation, I guess, of, of the war into art, into poetry, almost immediately gives us insight into the way such experiences are mediated in Roman culture. 
it sounds really, really fascinating, Tom, what you've just been talking about, this wide ranging project that you've got, that lots of different kinds of texts across different distinct periods of Roman history. And what you were saying there really connects to something which the Visualising War project is very, very interested in. And, and in fact, what another of our recent guests, Anders Engberg Pedersen, has discussed in relation to the Napoleonic Wars. So the way in which a certain period of war, quite a transformative period of war, and people's attempts to make sense of it and look back on it, ended up transforming literary forms. Um, you know, I think we've talked on the podcast quite a lot about how representations of war can shape reality by influencing how people think and feel and behave. But in your book, as in Anders's work, we see that feedback loop coming full circle, really, with, with reality also influencing these storytelling habits that people then use to re-narrate the wars, which then in turn presumably affected how people thought about war. So there's lots to dig into, but I wonder if you can start telling us a little bit more about what, what Latin literature actually was like before the Punic Wars and then how it how it developed afterwards in response. You've mentioned this very fragmentary poem by Nivius. Can you tell us a little bit about what we know about Latin literature in this sort of early period? And as I say, how it then is, was impacted by these transformative wars? Many would love to know what Latin literature was truly like before the Punic Wars. It's one of Roman cultural history's true mysteries. Uh, later Romans, so authors like Cicero, who write long after the period at hand, tell us that the first Latin works um, that follow the established Greek idea of what literature is, so epic, drama, etc., that they are all products of the post-war moment. So they're a, a, an outgrowth, a reaction in some ways to the conflict this book is about. Uh, there's a year, the year 240. It's immediately after the conclusion of the First Punic War. And there's a major festival at Rome that scholars think served as a type of world stage for the victors as they embraced their new status as a Mediterranean power. At those games, the putative first plays in Latin were staged by their author a man called Lucius Livius Andronicus, so Andronicus. He's got Latin and Greek names in there. So he's likely a figure who was once enslaved and whose identity was split between these cultures. So a sort of striking story in itself of the way warfare drives mobility and forced displacement can lead to new cultural interactions. At this festival, Carthage probably footed the bill, which is rather interesting because they were forced to pay Rome this sort of large war indemnity. So uh, the birthday of Latin literature in a sense, if we follow their own stories, was made up of plays in indirect celebration of victory in this war, and it was funded by Carthage. And it's the aftermath of that moment, even if we, we don't fully believe this kind of a single day theory of transformation, but it's in these years right after that we do see the rise of literary composition in Latin. And that includes the poem I mentioned, The Punic War by Nivius. So experienced history, these sorts of key events, that have been maybe transmitted in other modes begin to um, find themselves represented in new ways that has a, a very transformative impact on where they sit. Are they history? Are they myth? Are they something else? Now, I know you really asked about the situation before the war, and obviously there were modes of transmitting through oral history. We know about family archives, there are inscriptions at Rome, rituals, speeches. So there may have even been a song culture but a lot of that is supposition. So what I'll say is that from day one, Latin literature is linked to war in a very generative sense. War and its spoils fund and inform the subject matter of major texts, and it remains a consistent focus throughout the history of Latin literature. 
these are really fascinating observations. And I think our listeners will be particularly interested in this link between literature and society, culture and politics. Uh, today, obviously, reading is often a rather private affair. Writing is often a rather private affair. But uh, what we see here is that in Rome, literature starts as part of large social cultural developments that are celebrated, institutionalized on a public stage. And that feeds into one of the things I wanted to ask about. You said the first poet who writes about the war, Navius, he was also a war veteran. And I think it might be quite interesting uh, to our listeners to hear a bit more about this link between literature and war in the sense of who were the people who produced Latin literature and to what extent this is typical of how Roman literature was produced. One of the most surprising aspects, I think, of, of the first authors of Latin literature of the type we're, we're describing is that they come from not the kind of elite governing class, the actual commanders of, of these campaigns that are then represented. But in some ways, we have evidence that they're composed by, in this case, a combat veteran who was maybe a partial citizen. Those first plays uh, I alluded to by Livius Andronicus, composed by a figure who was, as I said, formerly enslaved and freed perhaps at Rome, but whose life was really linked to the writing of poetry and the relationships between the kind of families that really drove the culture of the era. This is the same in comedy and in other dramas that uh, were staged during these very years and that engaged with warfare in different ways, talking about um, captivity, for example, the experience of becoming a war captive. We're talking about the different places and figures who had been soldiers and find themselves now in new contexts across the Mediterranean. So well, the audiences then that visited such a performance and these epics that I'm sort of focusing on in the book and, and that we're talking about today, we're not always sure how they were transmitted, how, how people engaged with them, but they were probably performed as well. It's, we're not talking about solitary reading, as you mentioned. So this could cut across classes and provide a way of shaping not simply literary and literate group of Romans who are concerned with artful poetics on their own sake, but this could be one of the primary media for helping people experience traumatic warfare, the loss of family members, or simply wars to come in the future. Um, so I suppose one of the, the least direct connections, but it's one that I think spells out the potential that any of these works might have for commenting on the present is that the figure I mentioned, who is the first playwright at Rome, Livius Andronicus also wrote in translation of the Odyssey by Homer, which is, you know, the first epic in the Roman tradition is, as it were, uh, an engagement with a really set canonical important work of the Greek world. And it's a naval epic about a veteran's return home and his reintegration. You, you know, a poet like Nivius uses bits and pieces of this Homeric tradition, but zeroes in on more practical strategic dimensions. So you could find that in a Thucydides, for example, but the idea that people would look to myth or these other storytelling traditions to find ways of understanding the conflicts around them, maybe it really did take these culture brokers, these hybrid figures from inside and outside Roman society to kind of create this unique network that we find in the early literature. 
What you're bringing out there is a really fascinating distinction, actually, between Latin literary culture and Greek habits of visualising and narrating war. On the podcast last week, we had Roel Kaninadijk and Owen Rees talking about the way in which Greek historians like Thucydides actually writing from quite an elite position and focusing on very elite subject matters and elite interests and, you know, focusing attention on hoplites and quite idealising and Homeric ways of visualising war really cemented habits of thinking about warfare that you know have remained influential for centuries since and the picture that you're painting in latin literary culture is rather different with these hybrid characters as you say these authors who are not necessarily members of the elite but i'm really interested that you mention that translation of the odyssey as you were talking I i wanted to know a little bit more about the way in which you think these early latin poems and plays and literary responses to war engaged with greek literary representations of war to what extent are they engaging with with genuine experiences, personal experiences of trauma and conflict? And to what extent are they already engaging with literary habits of visualizing war? Well, it's a great question, especially because from the outset, Roman literary culture is so self-conscious and so invested in creating a relationship with what we would call the Greek literary tradition. So in order to find a reflection through one of these texts on lived experience that doesn't have at least one eye upon the Homeric or or the Herodotian or these other big traditions coming out of the Greek world would probably be a a difficult task. Um, That said, it it is somewhat different that we find at Rome in verse very early, a decision to explicitly depict recent contemporary warfare. That's not that this didn't occur in Greek poetry. It did, but it wasn't the the formative way of doing things. Um, Homer is about Troy and those Trojan stories in the later Greek tradition in Athens became ways of thinking indirectly about recent war, about the Persian Wars, for example. The the Romans do that. I mean, Nivius's poem includes a flashback, for example, to the fall of Troy. So it, it approaches the experience of conflict, the sack of cities, the displacement of refugees. It does that through what we would call Homeric lenses, but then it focuses on battles, commanders, the offices of the Romans, the virtues of the soldier in very civic moral terms. So we can see from some of these fragments in the Punic War, for example, the trials and tribulations of what we would call probably the average soldier. Traumas too. So there's depictions of acts of enslavement, of destructions of cities. And so it's hard to speak about works that survive in pieces as opposed to in the whole where we can talk about the tone and the narrative links between moments, but it does appear that there's a broader vision in a lot of these early works, even if they focus on single events, and they try to capture the way of life as a whole as it's subsumed to conflict. And maybe that's not so different from what many of the Greek works are about, but there is a a unique aftermath, I think, of Roman authors' decision to start from poetry about history and then turn to prose about history later in their own language. So there's a sort of a different set of expectations, maybe. Not sure that really went exactly on point. I'm just wondering also about the role of war as this catalyst or the foundational impulse to create what we would call literature. Is that because the Romans were such a military society that this was bound to happen, the first big war? But they have had wars before, obviously. Or is this because Homer 
and his war epics are so important that puts the Romans onto the, the importance of this first big war and prompts them to produce literature. So it's the Greek element in this cultural process that the first big overseas war prompts the origins of Latin literature. I think it's fair to say that during this period, the amount of contact people linked to the city of Rome had with Greek culture, including attending Greek plays, but also maybe access to performances of Greek epic or texts even of the histories, there was an acceleration of contact with this range of things. This is because Romans not only were now in a position to travel and to govern in the peninsula, they left it. The First Punic War gives the Romans their first overseas province, Sicily, which has been a literal triangulation point for the Western Mediterranean with long-established Greek cities, as well as various indigenous Sicilian peoples and Carthaginians. So it's a real meeting ground. It's a contact zone. And so in some ways, that must explain why now, as opposed to any other point, there is perhaps a bit of a public relations uh, cultural diplomacy angle, the kind of building up of soft power that the Romans can now have their own literature within the city that is supposed to be a, a quasi-capital for a new rising state. How can you be a Mediterranean power without something like a local literary tradition? You certainly can, and some recent scholarship has, has addressed this by numerous people, but there is some truth to the fact, I think, that the reason there is a decision to create texts in Latin that replicate in some ways things that had occurred hundreds of years before in the tradition of the Greek world is that Rome is now integrating into this network. They're propagating. The authors that speak to Roman collective interests are aware that the genealogy they may be claiming as descendants of the Trojans is an item that will be useful to them integrating into a wider network of engagement with Greeks. So the epics that treat that story up front probably have some role to play in either reflecting or shaping that more pointed socio-political decision. So the texts are playing an active role in heralding Rome's emergence, as it were, as a place where such things occur. The Carthaginians, for example, would be sending annually tribute and payment back to Rome after this first war. And so there's a sort of new set of people, the Greeks as well, visiting Rome often and having a sort of showcase, as it were, for what being Roman is all about, probably received a renewed importance. And so having festival culture where texts could be performed that spoke to recent experience seems not like an, an inevitability. Everything's contingent. But in retrospect, we can see how that may have grown directly out of it. Although at this moment, the Romans and authors writing for the Romans do turn to Homeric plot lines and myths to help contextualize Roman recent warfare and also to provide a kind of background, a backstory to Rome as, as a society. Homeric stories had been present in the region of Rome for hundreds of years in other ways. So in the art found on temples, we know from various find sites in the tombs of elite Etruscans and central Italians that they were engaging with the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So it's not so much that these things come out of a vacuum, these, these poems in Latin that deal with Homeric and with recent warfare. They're realizing in a new way a tendency that had already taken root in the region sometime earlier. And of course, one of the things that they're doing is then actually triggering a new tradition or a, an evolving 
Roman tradition. So you've sketched a really clear and, and fantastic picture there of this transformative moment in Roman history and Roman literature. The First Punic War in itself being transformative, but also triggering this a sort of explosion of writing and reflection and storytelling. So I suppose that gets me wondering um, what impact that storytelling went on to have. Of course, the First Punic War was followed not very long after by the Second Punic War. And I wonder if there's any way in which we can tell whether the stories that were told about the First Punic War impacted on the way in which the Second Punic War was conducted, or at least the way in which it was thought about or narrated. The, the Second Punic War is certainly the elephant in the room. Hannibal's famous march, his invasion of Italy, succeeded at the First Punic War in a very technical sense. It formed the Second Punic War's major content, but it also clearly left a larger traumatic scar on Roman collective memory. If we look back on the way the memory of this period in particular develops and is represented, it's the Great War giving way to a Second World War in a sense. And it's certainly the case that these works we're talking about, even Naivius's great epic of the First War, made its mark. It circulated such as it did, it was performed, it's likely almost fully composed in the years of this second conflict, the Second Punic War. So those experiencing this poem in the way it characterized Romans and Carthaginians, the way it presented the world in binary terms at times, the way it, it either lionized or critiqued combat, we can't always be sure, but the way it engaged with war with Carthage will have helped mediate the present war, the Second Punic War. So Romans may not have had at least the ability for those who knew this poem to see Hannibal in the same light again. And there are many other texts that parallel what I propose in terms of Naivius's poem. People look, for example, at the comedic stage at Rome, and there are a variety of characters that display some of the stereotypical habits ascribed to Hannibal, for example. And scholars have seen those as reflecting historically upon how deep the experience of conflict against Hannibal and Carthage in the Second War made it even where it's not immediately obvious. In terms of the sequence of these wars, the Second is admittedly more famous and references to it are more widely found in later Roman texts. And that's one of the factors that drove me to focus on the First War in the book to sort of try and sketch out its unique influence, knowing that one of its most significant points of influence would be during the Second War and the Third and helping it shape experience at the time, and then seeing how it can and can't be extricated from this sort of trifecta that later is, is referred to constantly in Roman texts. So after 146, when Carthage is destroyed, when the Romans wipe it off the face of the earth, in a sense, along with Corinth in an act uh, almost comparable to the dropping of two nuclear bombs in the Mediterranean to sort of herald the change in the dynamic, we have Carthage become an idea in a sense. There are still Carthaginians living in the region, but the first war then is, is almost impossible to remove from where Romans know the story ends. It, it has an end point. And when you read later Latin literature that's very engaged with these early texts we're talking about, Virgil's Aeneid, for example, which many listeners may have some exposure to, that's a story that returns to these Trojan tales, brings us back to Carthage in its sort of foundational moment, and, and is never not aware of 
where things will go, that there will be Punic Wars, and that Carthage will become a ghost city kind of lingering in the back of every Roman's mind. A lot of, say, a diffuse memory in some ways, very subtle ways in which the memory of the first Punic War then shapes the way in which Romans talk about wars, but also talk about completely different things. Characterization of figures and comedies, one of the things you mentioned. Just in terms of making this tradition a bit more concrete, when we say the memory of the First Punic War from Navius onwards, what kind of texts, what kind of media are we looking at? Can you give us a bit of an overview of sort of the major stages after Navius of this tradition? Yes, almost immediately, there's certainly a sort of splintering that occurs, and we find traces of the what we could call the reception of the legacy or the influence of the particular way this war was represented in, in its immediate aftermath that then stretch out over centuries, but, but never simply as an entity that just persists, but the, it's, it's something that's cultivated or, or reappropriated or changed at various points. So after Nivius, as it were, writes this poem that, that joins Trojan mythology, Homeric storytelling with historiography and with depiction of recent war, we have then an afterlife within subsequent epics and within subsequent historical texts in Latin. Some of the rules that were sort of set in motion by this text, the, the standards that were put in place, are felt almost as the backgrounds of later works that are about totally different conflicts or even about other topics altogether. So there's almost a um, background noise that's not always perceptible that is the first Punic War's influence. Now, there are later poems, for example, that continue to return to the Punic Wars all the way into the empire. During the Flavian period, under specific emperors, a senator named Silas Italicus decides to write an epic poem after Virgil, but in a Virgilian style, on the second Punic War. And, and large portions of it contain flashbacks to the first. And this is not simply the result of a figure who wants to rehash the beginnings of Latin literature to, to see if he can do a better job. I mean, maybe that a little bit, there's some competition, but it's a way of thinking about the past, about the Republic, about what these grand narratives of conflict and expansion meant at the time and how they could be made to mean something new in the present. Uh, he writes, for example, after a period of civil war and after the establishment of a new series of emperors with at least the pretensions to stability. So how could a story of Rome's greatest victory over a foreign conqueror at that point mean something in the present? A hero like Scipio, one of the central figures of that story, could be a model for emperors and, and was used as a model even earlier in Roman authors for the ideal general. Um, Cicero talks about that quite often. So there's a, a fine line one can draw. It's not always solely focused on the first Punic War, but that shows continued interest in that conflict as a story, as a narrative of war. Not quite fiction, but we might use the term occasionally. There's also an entirely separate series of afterlives in different media. Immediately after the war, for example, the city will have been left with various monuments, various new types of public art. That, that developed to commemorate this conflict. Many of them dealt, for example, with the maritime or the naval sphere that I mentioned. And those persist at Rome. Sometimes they're less relevant over the years, but they find themselves newly essential at various points down the line. I think a strong example that your listeners will be able to sort of visualize, as, as I say it, concerns the first emperor Augustus, who had to establish himself through war, and several of his key battles occurred at sea. And there's a clear visible pivot in the ideology of that moment to 
the first Punic War, in public art, in the poetry. You can visualize for yourself two monuments in the Forum, in the center of Rome. They're lost now, but we can see them depicted on coins and in texts. We could visualize it as two columns erected close to each other. Both have the captured ship rams attached to them. You could Google that image now if you want to see what an ancient ship ram looks like. But one of the columns is from the First Punic War, but it's been recently restored by Augustus. And the other celebrates his recent victory. So there's a dialogue created, a literal meeting of the past and the present, but it's a First Punic War past that's not allowed to simply signify as it once did. It doesn't just communicate the story that mattered in 240 BCE. It's a story that matters uh, new. And that's something, for example, that the Hannibalic War as a memory, as a strategy of visualization, couldn't quite capture for the needs of Augustus at that moment. And thus, you can see how the unique dimensions of a conflict make it more adaptable to certain subsequent wars because they share the landscapes of war repeat either in the exact same places, like in the example I'm mentioning now, or they just present similar challenges to, to the soldiers and to the various artists who choose to represent it. There's so much to dig into in what you've just been saying, and it really illustrates this feedback loop between narrative and reality. So you described some of these renditions of the story of the First Punic War as not quite fiction, but they are history that's become a story and that's generated these archetypes like Scipio, who are then at the same time as Silas Italicus is Punica, roughly the prose author Frontinus, for example, was collecting together lots of exemplary anecdotes from history, many, many of which are from the various Punic Wars. Um, and there, you know, the idea of that text is that these archetypes um, inspire future or current generals to do like deeds. And so what, what we can see then is these stories with the illustration you gave also of Augustus feeding back into later history and perhaps conditioning how people thought they would go about fighting a conflict themselves, or indeed how they wanted other people to visualise their conflict. So it's a very, very complicated relationship between literature and history and literature and reality that you're sketching there. So, Tom, moving back from uh, literature and society and, and literary traditions to uh, literature and poetry, I usually, I think, associated with aesthetically pleasing subjects, or at least with the uh, subjects that are somehow appealing uh, in, in some way. Of course, there's war poetry. So, um, there's always this sort of clash, I suppose, between what one expects from a poem and what one gets as soon as war is involved, as soon as battles are involved. And at one point in your book, you speak of the paradoxical beauty of war. So could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and how that might inform our understanding, how it informed your understanding of the text and the media that you're discussing? Yes, that, that phrase sticks out and it, it stuck out to me when I encountered it. It comes from Helen Lovett, the scholar, speaking of Homer's Iliad, but it applies more generally, I think. So war poetry, as you suggested, by default must be poetic. So it is a highly crafted verbal artifact devoted to engagement with humanity at its most destructive. And that's that odd mix that the phrase hits at. If the goal were simply to record and remember... We, we could imagine other modes that, that some would say were more suited to the task. Poetry suggests something deeper, maybe a processing and memorializing on specific terms. But, and I think but is key here, poetry is a mnemonic art in antiquity and a natural vehicle for the past. We can think about the discussion we had earlier about the Homeric backgrounds and the fact that that's a, itself a form of memory and transmission through poetry. That's a way to remember, a medium. So 
I think both impulses are correct for the texts I explore in the book, especially, for example, in the earliest period with Naivius's Punic War. It's not hard to see that verse is long established as a way of depicting war in the Greek world. So maybe we shouldn't puzzle over his choice to go that way instead of going another, to do something like an epic instead of a prose account. It has struck many scholars as a bit bizarre that it takes nearly 100 years just shy of it for a proper prose history in Latin to be written. But maybe it's not as surprising. There's also that dimension of memorializing the conflict. And in the case of a veteran like Nivius, I think working through it. And maybe here we get into a little bit of a, a hypothetical realm, but I think it's worth exploring anyway, since we can't wholly know what Nivius was about in writing the poem. As a veteran poet, creating a version that reflects the impression he had, perhaps at the expense of a focus on accuracy, could help explain some elements of the text. I do think maybe a comparative perspective can help. And I think cinema, and this is something I explore in the book, offers a, an accessible parallel. So in a notable review of Francis Ford Coppola's Vietnam War film Apocalypse Now in the New York Times, the film critic Vincent Canby referred to that famous scene of helicopters set against the sort of beautiful orange sky, bombarding villages to the score of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. And this is what he says, that it's a display of barbarism that's simultaneously lyrical and terrifying. And I think not just these early Roman war epics or even their successors, I, I think it does gesture to something that war poetry has to deal with from the outset, that they do want to capture the lyrical and the terrifying, though, though the goals of that paradoxical combination, what's trying to be affected by the text, if there is a goal even, that that's where the differences will come out. Is, is this a critical work? Is this a laudatory work? Is it both? It may be in the Roman case that these early works are more filled with praise, that they're slightly more invested in a kind of laudatory view of Roman achievement. But we can't be sure. And later Roman epics, Virgil's, for example, do suggest that lyrical and terrifying is still at play, but that maybe the idea of the barbarism or the inhumanity is probably a better way to put it, is something that's not just foreign, but is endemic to Roman actions and the identity of, of, of what it means to be a, a combatant in service of Rome as well. So there's a sort of a more ambivalent take. If I could, I'd also add that having stylized and distancing artistic accounts of war also offers ways of experiencing future conflict, and that's something we talked about already, through like an imagined idea of war, a nature of war that's, of course, shaped by, in this case, sometimes veterans, sometimes not, these artists playing a sort of key intermediary role. And so we're talking about that feedback loop. And since I mentioned the Wagner scene in Apocalypse Now, I can't help but recount its more recent history in such a loop. And it's an example I explore briefly in, in the book, uh, because we find in the U.S. invasion of Granada, for example, in 1983, that soldiers played Wagner from their helicopters. So acting out that cultural model for that moment of conflict. So we can sort of see how through their perspective, they were engaging in combat as it was mediated by film. And that occurred again during the second battle of Fallujah in Iraq, an event and a soundscape, which were then mediated again in Sam Mendes' 2000 film Jarhead. So you've got war and film shaping each other and in both directions. And at some point we probably lose track of the distinctions between uh, the aesthetic and the aestheticized accounts of war and those that one had experienced in other ways, perhaps firsthand. And I think that type of close relationship with conflict literature and art in Rome uh, has to be the case.
what you're saying there really touches on some profound truths about the relationship between storytelling and reality. And I'm interested in you drawing attention to these soundscapes, you know, just going back to what you said earlier about the Punic War becoming a kind of almost a background noise as much as a distinct story that shapes almost imperceptibly at times approaches to conflict. And you've talked there about sometimes the memorialising, sometimes the glorifying dynamics of poetry obviously that has a lot in common at times with memorial practices with monumental memorials and so on but I wonder if you you also mentioned the fact that in some ways some of the early poetry is constructing ideas of war but once you get to Virgil there is a little bit more deconstruction and analysis so I think one question I've got coming out of what you've just been saying is to what extent over time did these literary and other responses to the First Punic War become increasingly analytical or deconstructive or to what extent were they getting further and further away from analysing and unpicking and more and more interested in memorialising and idealising? Can we trace a pattern there where we see more or less analysis and deconstruction or idealisation over time? in future thinking about war? Is it leveraged in ways that become quite analytical or in ways that actually are really very far from analytical and are quite idealising? So I think in different media over time at Rome, the first Punic War, along with its Punic War successors, are certainly used in various ways. So it would be hard to generalise. It would also be hard to capture the range of possible reactions to to any conflict as it's re-engaged with over time. But I do think because the First Punic War enters a variety of media, certain types of public art, the first historical paintings in Rome displayed in public show up then, epic, as I've mentioned, so too other forms of drama. Because it first, and it is the first subject matter of these texts, that leads to, in a sense, providing a cast of characters or a set of situations and type scenes that do become almost stripped down to the basics. They can be models. They can be examples that later authors who are interested in singling out sort of a hero to base one's behavior on, or individuals who just exist in society might think back to. So it is a time of great cultural firsts, political firsts. And so it is utilized in that fashion as a sort of genesis point for a variety of behaviors at Rome. This is something that explains why, as I mentioned, you know, certain emperors will revive the the monuments of that era because it communicates in some ways differently than certain present concerns. The Emperor Augustus, for example, was interested in creating that dialogue between his recent wars and the First Punic War because the former could at least be understood as a war between good and bad in the simplistic Roman vision of the world at this point. Um, These are, as it were, foreign conflicts against external enemies who threaten Rome's existence, whereas the wars Augustus is dealing with in his age are mainly civil conflicts, wars against Romans. That's a messier business that's harder to glorify. And so even if the First Punic War, as it was initially represented, was also touched in these poems by considerations of loss, questions of the nature of conflict, even if it wasn't just all laudatory, it can become that in retrospect later when the nature of warfare at Rome has changed greatly and the good old days seem like good old days, as it were. You can use it as a myth for making Rome great again. 
And, and that's probably why the imperial poet I mentioned before, Silas Italicus, goes back to the Punic War in this time, the second, during the time of civil war and restoration in the Flavian period. So it's a place to think through certain concerns. And it's one of the first places that Roman authors did such a thing. So it has a lot of draw, I think, as a sort of anchor for a variety of issues that matter continuously over the centuries at Rome. And I suppose one of the things you were saying earlier might also come into play in sort of Augustus's interest in the first Punic Wars, because it was a foundational war and it was presented as a foundational war from the beginning, right? So for someone who pretends to be creating a new era that's based on a war, maybe that's the war to look back to, the war that created the greatness of Rome, that's, you know, started the Roman Empire. It's really quite interesting to see these connections. I have a slightly kind of different question, because we were talking about different media, different texts and dialogues between texts. You also quite rightly talked about readers and how people at different times read things differently. But I was quite interested in this dialogue. So you mentioned the two columns that we have in the forum at the age of Augustus that kind of enter a visual dialogue with each other and prompt this kind of dialogue. Do we find something at a larger level as well, where we don't have physical proximity, but we have the monuments and we have the literary text? Um, how does this dialogue work across different genres? During the early years of the First Punic War, told by the imperial author Pliny the Elder, for example, that the, the first painting was displayed in public of a Roman historical event. And it depicted a campaign in Sicily from the second year of the war. And it was erected on the side of the Senate House in the Roman Forum. So this is an apparent innovation. And if accurate, it suggests that anyone walking through the main public square would now see current affairs, in this case, individual Romans engaged in combat, elevated to new heights. And we know, for example, in Naivius's Punic War, subsequent to that work of public art, but not too far afterwards, that that same campaign was narrated. It's attested in one of the lines that survive. So we have evidence then of the First Punic War being mediated in visual art now and in this poem. And such competing strands of different types of mediation would obviously change how the war is remembered. And this would affect differently those who saw both, listened to a performance, saw this painting, or only engaged with it in one way. So there's a lot of inter and cross-media interaction happening at this moment. And these are, as, as I mentioned, both novel forms that they didn't exist 40 years prior, apparently. And so the transformational potential of that is huge. I guess I should add, because I've been focusing on poems and large monuments. So things we tend to think of as being crafted by artisans and, and refined. But, but the war was so present symbolically on everyday objects, right? Things that push the cultural representation even deeper into the un or the subconscious at Rome. So I mentioned that the First Punic War is, is very much defined, at least in the way it's represented as a naval or a maritime conflict. We see, for example, the coinage of this period, the coins people used, uh, the, the appearance of anchors and other maritime images. And coinage itself, and I mean coins that look you know, like circles that, that we sort of are familiar with, is also new to this moment. Before this point, they were using a different form. I know it sounds a bit like a broken record now on the idea of how, how innovative, how many firsts there were, and how so many of these firsts were responding to this conflict. They all interrelate. And I touch on this in the book, um, but there's, there's a, a recent article um, by Lucia Carbone, uh, curator of Roman coins at the American Numismatic Society, that, that integrates some of my work with a focus on the coinage. And so any of your listeners with an interest in how war and economic history interact might want to have a look at that as well. 
So, Tom, you've sketched a really convincing picture there of just what an impact the First Punic War had in all sorts of different areas in terms of generating art forms, generating habits of visualising war throughout Roman history. You know, your book covers multiple centuries of Roman literary and cultural history. And, and that's got me thinking about what impact later wars may have had on Roman collective memory and culture. The Romans did end up fighting a lot of wars, not just against Carthage, and they loved to remember them. Um, so, you know, the Fasti Triumphales, a sort of an inscription set up by Augustus in Rome, lists all of Rome's victories from the time of Romulus, right, in deep mythic history, all the way through to Augustus. And there are obviously plenty of wars subsequently. Would you say that there are any other wars in Roman history that have had the kind of impact, the kind of conceptual impact, which the Punic Wars had in shaping Roman culture and shaping Roman identity, and, and indeed in shaping the ways in which Romans prosecuted and thought about war itself? Every conflict that Rome and Romans fought will have shaped Roman culture, even if on a micro scale. So much that may seem obvious, but it's important, I think, to, to begin from that type of understanding. There, there are plenty of conflicts we don't know about in Roman prehistory, and, and they're what led, for example, to the development of the culture that had triumphs that were celebrated in those Fasti enlisted, like you mentioned. That became a culture that celebrated a god of war and then embraced the valorization of combat culture. That there was a society that, that liked blood sport, for example. This is a generalization. Not everyone participated in these things, but they did take root at Rome. And there's something to be said for an exposure to warfare that we can't access that must have led to that. Now, in terms of watershed moments, a few stand out. We've talked quite a bit about the Second Punic War with Hannibal's invasion, but we could maybe underline something like the Battle of Cannae in 216, where perhaps if we believe the historian Livy, something around 68,000 Romans died on one day. And that's in the pre-modern, pre-industrial world. So clearly moments like that will have struck to the core of Roman identity. Now, in that case, Rome's development of a kind of ethics of perseverance and warfare meant that they kept going. Sometimes, however, disasters did in various ways put a stop to Roman progressions. I, I can think of, of one, it's not really a, a, a war per se, it's more of a moment within a, a long war. So maybe in the aftermath of, of the US involvement in Afghanistan, we can think about conflict more in this prolonged sense. And I think about, in this case, the Roman experience to the north, uh, in Germany in particular, in 9 CE, when Romans had a significant loss against the German coalition in the Teutoburg Forest, that's done in Lower Saxony, right? So the Emperor Augustus was so taken aback by that defeat, that the policy of expansion on the northern Rhine frontier was, was more or less stopped, and it became one of maintenance and caution. So a policy change based on how traumatic a defeat was. To be clear, in that case, it's not as if um, Rome's legionary reserves were wiped out and that it couldn't have continued to operate as it had before. Um, it, it could have, but it has to do with just the way this particular defeat was received and the way it was then compounded. And when you read about it in later texts, um, Roman authors describe visiting that site of loss as a sort of ghostly graveyard. It's an open wound on, on the surface of the world. It's, it's haunted by past loss. And that's a bit romantic, I, I know, but it does reflect in some ways why that defeat, as opposed to others, had such a significant policy impact alongside just making an impact in in the textual realm. The civil wars are the other big elements that, that comes to mind. We've, we've touched on that. And that's a, a problematic idea at Rome, civil war, and why thinking back to the Republic um, allowed it to, to either obscure or paper over some of the, the more problematic dimensions 
or to at least put it in conversation with a different type of war. So those examples, I think, highlight especially the distance from that more celebratory type of historical poetics that I've suggested might have been more prominent in the early epics of Rome. And now we've got wars that are far more, as it were, detrimental in the way they're processed. And the, the literary representations of these, these moments of conflict embrace, as it were, the, the negative side. In the Republic, the sack of Rome by the Gauls is another event that I can't say much about because it's only really remembered in a form of near myth, but it lingers in the same way the Punic Wars do for different reasons in subsequent generations. So we've heard a lot about ancient wars now, Tom. I'm wondering, though, what about modern wars and battles? Have you looked at those at all? And have they contributed something to the way in which you have looked at the ancient texts? Yes, very much so. I think I've always been drawn to the power art about war seemed to possess. I was raised by a father who suffered from PTSD stemming from his time in Vietnam, for example. And we didn't watch realistic war films in the house. Certainly nothing like Platoon or Apocalypse Now, which I mentioned earlier. I sort of understood why this was the case when I was young, but not really. So, so the power of art about war to not only pass on information, but to kind of recreate past conflict and to reperform it, to, to bring it alive, but not necessarily for better or for worse, we might say, is indirectly one of the things that drove me to this topic. So I think I, I might not have realized it at the outset of the research project, but it was part of why I wanted to make sense of this meeting of cultural representation and warfare. I did find comparative approaches useful in understanding various contexts in ancient Rome, especially when we don't have voices that survive to inform us. And in a sense, to, to fill in some of the gaps that exist, especially in the earlier Republican period, I chose to think about the range of possible reactions by considering the way people have reacted to similar situations in later and other periods, or the way similar artists have worked in other periods. So that link, for example, that is created between epic and historical warfare at Rome during the First Punic War, I, I compare that link with the bond created between television and the Vietnam conflict, because this was its primary way of reaching most people at the time. Print media was still there, of course, but there was this new thing, and it was present in many living rooms around the world, and it presented, as it were, access to a vision of war, of films, so seemingly more objective, but of course we all know that that's a the lens is itself a narrative device. It chooses what it shows. And so I do explore that as a comparative context. And I also look then at the various Hollywood films that mediated the Vietnam conflict in the years after. So seeing how, in a way, something closer to maybe epic in the way it approaches scale and tone changed the way that the medium of television, which may be more comparable to a sort of uh, the idea of a reportage or something, the way that there was this disjuncture I could study. So I found interviews, especially with veterans, on the experience of seeing these war films and having those depictions conflate with lived memory, extremely helpful for conceptualizing the methodology of how this may have happened in antiquity. There's a lot of great scholarship about the way generational and cultural and collective memory of major events like the Holocaust, for example, function down the line, how these memories are passed on through multiple media, and can make it as if you've almost lived what you didn't live because it's a prior generation's experience. And so it's another thing I found quite illuminating in looking at the Roman period. I'd also find striking how various questions of the so-called reality effect of a work 
can relate to core issues of fact and fiction. So the poetry and history question, for example, that plagued ancient thinkers as well. And the example that jumps to mind is the photography of the American Civil War. So that medium itself was new at the time, and it literally shaped and defined how many people saw the battlefield. So similar to television during the Vietnam conflict, or in this case, Nivius's poem for the people who didn't leave Rome for the conflict itself. Several of the most influential photographers of the United States Civil War restaged the bodies of the dead to create striking scenes that better communicated the truth of war, or at least that was the rationale stated explicitly. So fiction then being more powerful than truth in what is sometimes considered the most objective of artistic media, the photograph in that sense, which is a misnomer. These photographers included Matthew Brady and one of his protégés, a man named Alexander Gardner, who was a Scotsman who was captivated by the photography he saw at the Crystal Palace exhibition in 1851 and then went to America to work with Brady and ended up out on the battlefields of the Civil War, thinking about how to stage a corpse to best convey the gravity of the scene. So you've got an awful lot, it sounds like, from looking at parallels between ancient habits of storytelling, idealization, reconstruction, and much later examples, you know, in 21st century, but also the 20th century and and earlier. It's clearly the case that looking at modern ways of representing war can help us look with fresh eyes at ancient habits of representing war. But what about the other way around? What can studying the poetics of, let's say, the First Punic War or other ancient texts contribute to our understanding of modern visualizations of war and battle? You've talked about the ways in which these very, very early poetic responses to the First Punic War were in part a processing of personal experience, personal trauma. And I think you've actually been involved in a program in the US working with veterans reading Lucan's Roman poem about the Roman civil wars. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that as a way of thinking about how these ancient texts might speak to modern experiences as well as modern experiences helping us understand these ancient texts. Um, Yes, of course. I I mean, there are a variety of ways in which looking at Greek and Roman depictions of warfare and engagements with it can help us understand subsequent uh, centuries and so to the present. In particular, there's the the sort of historical influence argument, which is that many eras chose to use the classical past for for various reasons, some relatively bad reasons, but nonetheless, they returned to it to understand the warfare they were engaging in or, or to write it up. I think the way that Romans and Greeks thought and about warfare and depicted it can be valuable for studying and analyzing and understanding representations of war in subsequent centuries, on the one hand, because those societies and the way they dealt with war were still influential. On the other hand, there are less direct reasons that they're not just genetic or causation. They're the fact that people choose to make these jumps and leaps across time to to look at how humans have reacted to war or suffering in different contexts, and that 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 very comparison can be productive. Um, There's a reason why the fact that a line of Virgil's epic shows up on the 9-11 memorial in New York has been taken as uh, both a provocative and striking and positive choice and one that underplays the complexity of the epic poem from which the line came. So the ancient world's depiction of war, and in this case, Roman epic, in the example I just cited, persists because we, we persist in making it do so. That said, just thinking about the fact that we're talking about different societies, doesn't mean that at the core, human experience of warfare can offer, as it were, points of contact that, that aren't quite transhuman, but, but that do bridge the apparent boundaries between all the other ways that 
human rights, for example, and other priorities differ. Um, and so the program you mentioned, I'd be happy to say a little about, but mainly just to draw your audience's attention to the two scholars and their great work at the university in West Virginia, where it's based, which is Marshall University. And that's a school in the US with the highest or one of the highest percentages of student veterans and those on active duty. And what the two key investigators, um, Drs. Christina Franzen and Robin Reiner have done is they built on the success we see in various public outreach programs that have used theater, for example, to grapple with the trauma of war or social unrest in recent years. I think especially of the theater of war productions, which stages Greek dramas in contemporary modes and frames them with guided discussions. They've actually kept that up on Zoom during the pandemic. And so with this project um, at Marshall, I, I consulted on the development of the proposal. I, I gave a lecture on campus and I'm currently helping with the application for renewed grants to sort of build on what's currently happening, happening right now, um, which, which obviously being on the other side of the Atlantic, I'm not directly involved with, but at the moment, um, I think what's unique about their program is that they're using Lucan's Roman epic on the Civil War at the center of this program, which is gory and hopeless at times. It embodies all those elements of civil war we talked about earlier, as opposed to sort of foreign conflict, which the Romans could glorify more easily. But it also has a kind of dark humor to it. And the poems typically used for this type of cultural therapeutic work are usually highbrow is the wrong word, but I've, I've already mentioned the use of Greek tragedy, for example, as a sort of a standard in, in this type of, of public engagement. And so the thinking for this project, and this was something Dr. Franzen's in-class insights and my own with students in the U.S. at the time was, was that those paradoxes, the light and dark of that poem on war, can speak to the absurdity of experiencing war better than those that obscure the almost laughable incomprehensibility of the battlefield. So student veterans were responding to it in ways that they weren't necessarily to some of the other works that, that professors had assumed would be the, the right way in. The most notable feature I think about this program is that it prepares student veteran leaders to guide public discussion groups, as well as groups made up of veterans to read Lucan and other works centered on warfare from antiquity to the present age. So dealing with the global war on terrorism, for example. And so this way, a classical text that, that is somewhat different from those typically used in this type of public engagement anchors the exploration of a variety of thought thinking on warfare from different eras and the point of access for this engagement uh, and the people shaping the context for engaging with this ancient poetry are then veterans themselves. They are the audience in some instances and the leaders of the discussion. And, and creating that type of safe, open space for engagement with these texts is, is probably the best way to allow them to continue to work their magic in the present. So. so a lot of sort of applications of reading ancient literature in dialogue with modern developments, modern events, modern literature, and that goes both ways which is really interesting to hear how, how war and reading about war can also have this sort of very positive effect and help people deal with serious issues. Tom, before we let you go, we'd love to hear a bit more about your plans for the future. Will you stay with war as a topic and do some further work on this or uh, what's in the pipeline for you? Well, I'll just briefly say one thing about one project I have going at the present. I am writing a commentary, so a detailed guide to the language and content of a, a portion of that Roman epic poem I mentioned earlier called the Punica, the one that Silas Italicus wrote as a return to the Punic Wars during this point in the empire. 
So what I hope to do there is build on some of the comparative perspectives learned in writing this recent book and integrate that into the notes for readers and kind of complement what is traditionally a more a more language-based tool for readers of Latin works uh, to complement those aspects of the text with this kind of long history of Punic War visualization at Rome. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing where that goes then, Tom. It's been really fascinating talking to you today. You've given us an incredible picture of the way in which the First Punic War not only transformed all sorts of things on the ground in Rome in terms of developing Roman power overseas and establishing a sort of a growing empire, but really transformed the ways in which literature was evolving and the ways in which people were visualising and, and talking about and narrating war, which in turn obviously had all sorts of impacts on subsequent conflict and subsequent behaviours. You've looked at the interplay between different media, but also that really complex relationship between storytelling and reality. So it's been really, really interesting hearing from you. Listeners who've been interested in the text that Tom's talked about might want to go on the Visualising War website, where Tom has kindly put together a blog with some of the fragments of the text by Nivius and Andronicus that he's mentioned today, and a little bit more discussion of them. Yes, Tom, thank you very much also for me for coming on the show today. It's been really fascinating. So a big thank you again to you, Tom. But thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Tom Biggs as much as we have. Do keep tuning in to the Visualising War podcast. Next week, we'll be moving from the ancient world to the 21st century to begin a mini-series on war and peace reporting. Our guests will be Margot Ben, a freelance journalist who's worked for the New York Times, Agence France Presse, Le Figaro, and other media organizations, and Norman Romani, a press monitor and consultant at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Both of them will be reflecting on their experiences of war and peace reporting in Afghanistan, among other places, and on what journalism can do to promote conflict resolution, as well as the role it plays in helping the wider world visualize many different aspects of war. So please do join us for that if you can. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Gertin. Thank you for listening.